Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, and welcome to this autumn edition of the Run Run Live podcast. And I know I'm a bit tardy with this one. It's because of a perfect storm of scheduling priorities. Like I said before, I have a new gig in the city where I have been figuring out the commute and putting in long hours. And on top of that, I've been in the final stages of training with those long runs and hard workouts. Time has been short and logistics have been challenging for writing and recording. But that being said, this is not the Wine About Things podcast. No, this is the Run Run Live podcast where we talk about transformational power of endurance sports. And today we interview Bill Sikalik from the Run the Parks. And you may have seen him in that running magazine or heard him on a podcast recently. He's got a good PR presence, and it's a great story. It's a it's a good chat. Like always, I think I ask different questions <laughs> than your your mainstream media. I like what he's doing. It's a good it's a transformational story, like so many of the others we hear. Like I have been alluding to, I've been hard pressed with a new professional gig, and I had a couple of business trips over the weeks here and have been putting in some long hours. I'm not complaining. I love it, and I understand that the first 90 days in any new position, whether it's a contract or a new job or a new role in your current company or any new position, those first 90 days are a special opportunity that you need to seize and that you can, you know, you can adjust your life balance around that. So here it is. I'm going to give you the present of a few hours of my thoughtful attention, my Run Run Live friends. Training has been a bit of a challenge over the last couple of weeks, but I did get a nice long run in on the WAPAC course, and I've got plenty more long runs in, managed to squeeze them in, and I'm ready for the main marathon this weekend. Meh, of course, I'm ready for it. I mean, I could roll out of bed on a random Tuesday and run a marathon. Am I in race shape? Eh, I give myself a solid B on that. My engine is still good. My legs aren't as strong as I'd like them to be. I've gotten in a couple of 20-milers, a couple of 18-milers, that long WAPAC race. I'm in pretty good shape. My engine's good. We'll see. The big news, I guess, is that I did get my confirmation letter for the 2018 Boston Marathon, and this will be my 20th Boston Marathon, and I am qualified for this race. That's right. So for those of you who have been on this journey with me, or more correctly, on your own journeys with me, uh, we've seen some ups and downs, haven't we? And we've been witness to many things, and we've experienced the meat and marrow of many endurance happenings, and we've learned a lot. And what a long, wonderful trip it's been, hasn't it? So here's a story from one of my first days uh, when I first got into this new office. So I've been getting in early into the city to beat the traffic, and there's another guy who comes in early too, and he was sitting next to me, and he and I were chatting, first one's in the office, and I don't know how we got on the subject. I don't think it was me. I think it was a segue from the nice, cool fall weather, 
but he starts telling me about the time he ran the Ragnar Relay on Cape Cod in the fall. So I nod, you know, and I ask some encouraging questions like, did you have a 12-person team? Did anyone get injured? And he then he tells me about how he ran it with his Spartan buddies and about how obstacle racing is really his big thing. You know, those mud runs. So, again, I try to be helpful, and I say, did you run that one up in uh, Killington? And he says, oh, yeah, I love the beast. And so I say, yeah, good for you. That's a tough race. And he says, yeah, you know, we, I did it in like nine and a half hours. And we kept talking. But the point of my story is that I didn't say a word. <laughs> about myself. I just complimented him on his achievements because I try not to be that guy in the office. You know, I, I have always tried not to be that guy that people avoid because that guy always drives the conversation back to himself and his, you know, his running the whatever he did this weekend with his endurance sports. So, let people celebrate their lives and achievements. You know, don't always be playing who's got the biggest. Even if they stumble into your domain of expertise, celebrate with them, right? It's not about you. But just for the record, <laughs> remember back in, well, it would have been 2008 when we ran that Ragnar as the Brooks-sponsored ultra team with six athletes, and we won it. Remember that? And, yeah, I remember when I interviewed Joe DeSena about the Spartan stuff last year when he gave me a free entry to the Killington Beast, and I ran it in six and a half hours <laughs> as a 54-year-old. Yeah, but it's not about me, is it? <laughs> On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. WAPAC 2017, a good long run in the rain. There were six of us or so in a tight pack, Paul the race director, a couple of Spartan racer guys, a couple others, we were picking our way down the backside of Binny Mountain. We were chatting away, having a ball. I was telling the Spartan guys to take it easy because this was the hardest part of the course when we came back in the other direction. It was not uncomfortable running. It was in the low 50s and raining hard from the remnants of Hurricane Harvey. And as long as we were moving, we were fine. I'll take 50 and raining over 85 and humid any day. The backside of Binny is a near-vertical descent under the New Hampshire forest canopy. It's a single path with lots of roots and rocks and trees that you can grab to slow your fall. The storm made the darkness of the forest even darker, and the rain was hard enough to penetrate the treetops, and it filtered down into our eyes and made it hard to see the trail. A couple inches of water ran down the center of the trail, and we had to bounce off the sides to avoid it. Now, I love this course. It's mostly single path, highly technical trail, out and back, 30K-ish, up and over, four mountains, twice. And it runs more like a trail marathon because of the technical nature of the mountains in terms of distance. It's all runnable if you're a stud, but these days I do a lot of hiking on the ups, to be honest. There's maybe 3,500 to 4,000 feet of total elevation gain. There's only one real open part in the middle on a forest road of about a mile where you can really push it on the you, you can't really push it on the way out because it's uphill and connects with the last and largest climb on the backside of Watetic on the way out. But on the way back, you can stretch it out because you're not running up Binny anyhow. It's too steep and too technical, so you can push that shallow downhill into the uh, into Binny. I let the pack go at the aid station in the gap after our successful descent of Binny on the way out, and I had to scoot into the woods for a woodland potty break. It was okay. I wasn't in a hurry. This was a long run for me, a good endurance outing for my legs and my aerobic base. I went into it at the end of a build week, a hard workout on Tuesday, a hard workout on Friday, and the run on Saturday, going into the race on Sunday with tired legs. And Coach was taking advantage of the race to push my fitness, my cumulative fitness. 
I had given my friend and clubmate Charty a couple of bottles of smoothie to hold for me at the Binney Station, and she and her husband Dave had the requisite big truck with the four-wheel drive to get up the Binney Road into the mountains and set up that aid station. And since I had this support mid-race, so about so it's eight, it's about 18 miles, and the Binney Station is maybe four and a half in. So you hit it at four and a half in, and then on the way back, you hit it again with four and a half to go. So you hit it twice. And there's another one at the turnaround, which would be about nine miles. So you get a you get an aid station every four miles or so. And since I had the support mid-race, I opted to go with my smoothie strategy that works so well in that 50K down in Connecticut in the spring. Pick one up on the way out and another on the way back. I had my water backpack on, but I didn't put the bladder in, given the cold weather. I wouldn't need water, per se. But I put my phone in there and my Enduro lights. I don't usually carry my phone, but I figured it was going to be a long day, and I could use the music. And I've been crash-testing a set of Bluetooth headphones that were given to me for testing, and I figured this would be a good test. I pushed through Vinny, got my smoothie, and... Up through Watetic, taking it easy. With the rain, the views from the tops of the mountains weren't so hot. You could see about 12 feet. (laughs) Last year, I ate up my legs too early, pushing it down the back of Watetic to the turnaround. I ended up cramping up late, but it was hot last year. It was in the 80s. Uh, So I made sure to hold back, work my nutrition, take my time. My old hokas, yep, I was wearing my old hokas. And they work great on the wet rocks. Most of the other guys with trail shoes were slipping around because they had those hard carbon outsoles, and those lose all their grip when it gets cold in the rain. And I bought those hokas for Boston. (laughs) They have to have over 500 miles on them. They're just getting broken in. And I was running the sides of the trails and trying to avoid the deep puddles. And I ended up getting whacked by branches. And at one point on the way back, I actually took a branch straight to the chest, a broken branch straight to the chest. It was like it was on a a cedar tree where someone had broken off a live branch and left like that 12-inch nub sticking out. And I ran right into it and bounced off, like, like losing a jousting match. And I was deep into my trail trance, so I just just kept going and thought, huh, that's gonna leave a bruise. But you had to stick to the sides of the trail, so, I, you know, you ran into things sometimes. So I hit the turnaround, took some time to fill my water bottle, have a fig newton or two, chatted up some old friends, told them to bring some blankets or something with them when they went out to do the sweep. Because if someone bonked and had to walk in that cold rain, uh, they might go hypothermic uh, in this weather. So... I hit the turn just over two hours. I felt fine. I was running all alone for the most part. I took the opportunity to fish out my phone and those headphones that I'm testing, and I dialed up a couple of good Grateful Dead concerts and headed back. Perfect. Perfect trail running music. And I got over Watetic with no issues. It was very, I was very much focused on not getting lost. As many times as I have run this course, I know how easy it is to take a wrong turn. When you take a wrong turn on this course, it can add miles as well as mountains. And it's super annoying to realize that you have to run back up a mountain to get back on the trail. So I stretched out. I stretched out on the road into Binney Station, that that one straight flat bit. And I got sick of trying to avoid the puddles and just started running through them. I was soaked anyhow. I picked up my second smoothie and set off for the last three mountains, the last 4.5 miles, the big climb up Binny, and I was digging the tunes and having a blast. It's so strange to be out running in the woods and look at your watch and have it say, you know, three hours or some odd number like that and go, huh, three hours, and you just feel great. It's like being, it's like running in the woods. So I was running strong, but I ended up waiting at a couple of the intersections and losing time because I couldn't for the life of me remember which way to go at a fork, <laughs> even though I've run this trail a bunch of times. To my, you know, it had, the trail has changed. The race, the race course has changed over the years, so it's not entirely my fault for being an idiot. So I, I would just wait for another runner to catch up so I could 
know the right way. And, and I'm glad I did. I probably lost five or 10 minutes waiting, but it saved me some extra miles and I wasn't in a hurry. And I didn't race hard. I just kept moving forward, kept churning up the hills without resting, did a good job of holding back and spreading my energy. I remember looking at my watch and being over three hours in and feeling like I was just out running an easy trail run in the woods behind my house. And I could run that pace forever. I finished strong. I ran a 4.11, which is pretty slow for me, but it was the race I wanted to run. I didn't cramp at all. I had plenty of energy. My legs felt fine. I didn't fall. I mean, I stumbled a couple times, but I didn't fall. I had a great time with my club, built another brick in my fitness, and with the weather and the end of a build week and my crazy schedule, I'll take it. And now for today's featured interview. Bill, how are we doing today? Uh, wonderful. Great so, day here in Colorado. Yeah, Colorado is one of those running meccas, right? Yeah. It's one of those hot spots like Boston or, or up in Portland. Give us the, uh, the 200 words or less, the, the standard media clip on who you are and what you're doing. Yeah, my, my name is Bill Psycholic. I am in the midst of a life experience project to run a marathon, my own self-directed uh, 26.2 miles in all 59 U.S. national parks. As of this point right now, I've in the past 54 weeks, I ran 48 marathons in all of the parks in the lower 48 states and the uh, national park in Virgin Islands. Awesome. So was there a, a time limit imposed on this? Like, were you trying to get them done in a certain amount of time? No, actually, but I was just trying to see if I could do them all um, on the amount of money I had saved up. So uh, I was able to complete all of the parks in the lower 48, and I should be able to get Hawaii and American Samoa done in October. And then summer of 2018 will be the eight parks in Alaska, which uh, are logistically challenging and a little more expensive than than uh just driving from park to park here in the in the lower 48. Yeah, that's what, uh, another question I was going to ask you. Is this all the national parks or just selected <coughs> national parks in each state? No, here's the, here's the uh, the confusing thing for for people. The National Park Service runs and operates 417 national park um, units. And those include things like the national monuments, national battlefields, national seashores, all of these different designations that uh, fall with under the, um, the, the, the umbrella of the National Park Service. The difference between a national park and the other designates is the um, national parks have to be approved by Congress, whereas all the other designates are created at the directive of the president. So that's why of the 417 units, there are only 59 national parks. Okay, and those are the 59 that you're going to run. Right, and there is not one in every state. So right. that's the other thing. I've driven through a lot of states, but uh, there's not a part, there's not a 59, one of the 59 national parks in every state. And there's multiple national parks in some states. Yeah, uh, California has the most. They have nine, like Utah has five, Alaska has eight, and on and on. Yeah. Last year, I actually bought one of those uh, national park passes, mm -hmm. and, and I was thinking about doing the same sort of thing, getting out and seeing some, because some of these national parks are just amazing. Yeah, it's it's such a great place to run, and I did not do not see very many runners in the national parks. I mean, they are protected, unspoiled natural places within driving distance, right? And to go and experience them out away from the visitor center out away from the trailhead is just kind of it's it it gives you energy like nature calms you and refreshes you but also energizes you in the same at the same time and to do that in these places is just something special yeah so last not this previous spring but a year ago spring i was able to go out in the end of may and run the uh, grand canyon with my daughter uh we didn't huh. we didn't in and out <clears throat> which they recommend you don't try, but you know me. Um, so so did you go down Did you go down and back up the same way, or did you do yeah. rim to rim? Yeah, I did the, uh, the logist more logistically easier way. I went from the north yeah. rim down across the river to the little um, 
uh, area they have down there and then back. Yeah. Wow. You had to come back up north. You went down and up north Kaibab. That's right. That's a that's a punishing trail. I uh, I did rim to rim when I was there. I had a, a friend come down to the north rim and uh, very graciously and generously put me up at the lodge um, for a night. So I ran from the south rim up to the north rim. And yeah. that last coming up north Kaibab when it was hot and was that was that was a challenge. Yeah, but a lot it's, of fun. it's yeah, it's got these near vertical switchbacks. I don't know. Yeah. What would you say? Like eh, 18 percent, maybe grade <laughs> something like that. It was yeah. it was tough. And then to add like insult to injury, there's a bunch of like chubby tourists getting in the yeah. way. In your last yeah. quarter mile, right? <laughs> I I worried about some of those folks because at some of the the stops on the way down, I said, "Wow, it's great that you got down here, but it's not easy getting back up." Yeah. And yeah, no, I, I I applaud people for getting out, and I never want to make anybody uh, feel bad about about the effort, but you got to be safe about it too. Yeah, you get uh, you see a lot of people sitting by the side of the trail looking miserable on your way out. <laughs> So I'm sure they drag a lot of people out of there. Um, yes, they do. So what was it? I know you've been doing a lot of media, so you probably get asked the uh, why are you doing this question um, a lot. But my specifically, you know, you had a normal job. You woke up one day and said, I, I want to do this. What was that epiphany? Yeah, that that's happened. It was it was more of an evolution, and I maybe there is an epiphany in there somewhere. But I always look at it as a as a process, uh, as a lot of things have have been for me. So I'll give you I'll try to give you the abridged version here. But in I was living in New York City, I was uh, living in Queens and working in Manhattan, corporate job as a management consultant, running big IT projects, and it just wasn't. F- uh, feeding me anymore. It wasn't fulfilling. It was, I was kind of depressed. I wasn't happy with where I was living. I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And I was just thought there's gotta be more <laughs> to, to it than just this. Um, and I was doing all the things you're quote unquote supposed to do. You're supposed to go to college. You're supposed to get a job at a bank. You're supposed to get an MBA. You're supposed to continue to do that. And, uh, all that was fine, but it just wasn't, it wasn't leading to my own personal happiness. So I decided uh, that at the end of uh, 2015, that when my lease was up in May of 2016, I would leave New York and settle in Denver. And that was to be closer to the outdoors, uh, a little in an area in which people are, are really out and about and doing things and enjoying the, uh, the wonderful scenery and weather here. I wanted to take some time off in between leaving New York and settling in Denver. And the short of this is that I happened to read while I was thinking about this that it was the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service. Yep. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, maybe I'll see some of the national parks on the way out to, to Colorado. And here's where this process happens over several days or a week or a week and a half or so. So I thought about that. I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. And it just didn't – it didn't grab me. It wasn't compelling. And I thought, well, well I like to trail run. I really so I've done um, lots of lots of running, lots of 50ks. Uh, I've done up to the 50 mile distance, and I prefer trail running to road running. And I thought, well, maybe I'll trail run in the national parks as I go to Denver, and that was cool too because now that's incorporating what I like with these natural places. But it still didn't grab me. It wasn't big enough, and I wasn't necessarily looking for something big. But I thought, you know, if I'm going to take the time off anyway, let's let's see what I can really do and. I thought, well, why don't I run a marathon in all 59 national parks? And then the more I thought about that, the more I thought, wow, that's really – that's big. That's compelling. That's something that will be a physical, logistical, mental challenge. And I know it's possible to run a marathon a week. I've seen other people do that. People do that in their training for ultras. But uh, I didn't know if it was possible for me to do it. So why not get out and try it? Yeah, so is that what you've been averaging, like a marathon a week? Yeah, I did 48 marathons in 54 weeks, and three weeks of that happened to be where I was helping some friends by, uh, uh, I was house-sitting for them in Portland, Oregon, while they were in on a holiday in Asia. But And that was just to help them out, and because I had the time. Uh, otherwise, I would have continued on and done them one a week. Yeah, typically when I talk to people who are doing these marathon a month or marathon a week kind of things, 
um, the logistics ends up being a thousand times harder than the actual running. Yeah, well, so for me, uh, these this whole project is a way for me to reconnect with nature and try and be a, an example for people to recognize that they can make a change in their life. And, you know, also getting out of nature is restorative. So mine aren't organized races. Yep. I get out a trail map. I figure out what I think is a good 26.2 mile route. I go in, I meet with the rangers, and we work out whether any adjustments have to be made. Do I need to, are there trails closed? Are there their animal concerns. And, uh, then I pick a day and I go out for a joy run through nature. Yeah. Yeah. And since you're doing it on the trails, it's easier on your body as well. Oh yeah. Well, (laughs) depends, depends on how much climbing there is, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. No, just in general, it's softer, you know, unless unless you roll an ankle or something. If you're, if you're a good trail runner going in, it's going to be easier than, um, and pounding them out on cement sidewalks. Yeah. So did oh, you yeah. keep your job or did you? No, no. I, I quit my job in May. So when my lease was up at the end of the month, I also quit my job. And uh, I've been living off my savings ever since. I've been being very frugal. I stay at campgrounds. I stay at hostels when, when appropriate and available. And um, living out of the back of my Subaru. So there must be some people in your network who would say that have told you that you're crazy. <laughs> I get that a lot. You know, yeah. wow, that's crazy. I go, mm, not really. I mean, it's definitely not exactly uh, th- typical, but um, I don't think it's crazy. I think it's uh, it's just my my method of taking a break and exploring. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, are, pro- you probably get the 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 other side of that too, where you get people go, I would love to do that. <laughs> Well, I get that all the time too. And so part of my message is that of possibility and change. You know, right. my friends and, and colleagues are all sort of also professional corporate, a lot of them. And they, I hear I could never do that. And I think when you hear that phrase, and I hear it all the time, or I'd, I'd love to do that or something, is that you, you're probably limiting yourself in other areas of your life too, because right. that's your immediate response. It's to right. your exactly what you say. That's crazy, or I could never do that. Like you could, right. absolutely. And if you're responding to something that I say with that kind of response that quickly, you're you're probably closed down in other areas. Yeah, and that's one of the the most common epiphanies I see with people running running marathons, doing this stuff, is they get to this point where they go, oh, my God, I didn't think I could do that. Now what else can I do that I didn't think I could do, right? So exactly. It's, it's super common, and I love that. That I think that's the that power of transformation is one of the things I really love about endurance sports, um, that enablement. So we were talking a little bit before. You put together a plan to go do this, and then you actually went out and did it? You know, how did the actual doing of the plan, you know, relate to – what you envisioned it as, because I'll talk to guys who, you know, have run across the United States or, you know, done these other giant projects like this. And it tends to have an arc to it where you get you're very excited going in and then somewhere, you know, a third to two thirds through it just gets awful. Like <laughs> and then at the end, it comes back around to being wonderful again. Hadn't thought about it that way, but I think there was probably. Uh, a bit of that during this trip. What I experienced is that, so for my entire professional career, I've always been in sort of your typical corporate type roles. And for the first, say, seven months of this, seven, eight months, I ran it like a project. Like I ran it like it was, uh, I've got to achieve, 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 and get to the next one and check it off and got to have everything lined up, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, uh, that was because that's what I knew, and that was my my experience for you know most of my life. And so it took a while to break away from that, and I was enjoying the trip, but let it be a little bit more free-flowing and a little less structured and have a little more you know spontaneity, like, oh, hey, I'm going to go over there today instead of working on the next video or blog post or something. And once I got to that point, I was like, okay, now I can just, I see that I can do this. I can, it's, it's the, 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 I've done it already for seven or eight months. So I know the routine and I can just sort of let it go and enjoy it and not be as structured and rigid. And that was, that took, 
here's the the thing about that is it took longer than I thought it was going to. And I, it, and I, I thought that maybe after a month or two, you know, I'd kind of relax and I'd kind of be into this and enjoying the national parks and going from place to place. And, and, uh, it took a long time to like, let all of that go. You know, I still have panic attacks every now and then because here I am still without a job. I'm looking for one, um, to hopefully have to help offset the costs of, of, uh, Alaska specifically, you know, you have that panic attack, like, holy, holy crap, I'm not working. And, um, you know, do I want to go back to corporate life? It's the same with anything where it takes people a while to just sort of relax and fall in love with whatever it is through the art mm-hmm. of that project, you know? Yeah. So, it, yeah, that's interesting. That's super interesting. So I know in projects like this, when you do that final, you know, that final sort of coming to grips with it and relaxing into it, you start to have epiphanies. Right? Mm-hmm. And people will tell them these stories of, you know, I crested this ridge at seven o'clock in the morning and there was an elk standing, you know. So mm-hmm. what, were your, what were your top three epiphanies when you were out Oof. there? I think uh, one of the things that I co- sort of learned is that I can I can sort of do things like this. You know, when I sort of started the project, so I'm not an experienced camper. I've not done any kind of big life adventure project. I've not, you know, climbed Everest or done anything like that. And I'm not, I would say I'm not a skilled outdoorsman. And of of anything, I'm a I'm a pretty good trail runner. But other than that, I don't have a ton of experience in the outdoors. And so this was a learning experience for me. Like how would I like camping? How would I like navigating in the woods with the uh, a trail map and would I get lost and what would happen if I get lost and how do I prepare for potential issues that might happen on the trail? And so I just wasn't sure. And then after a few of them, maybe I think maybe, um, Theodore Roosevelt national park, which I don't know, I'm a seven or eight into it, something like that, where, um, I'm on the trail. The trail's not very well marked. There are animals on the trail that I had to navigate and, I made a, a game time decision to add an extra four miles to the route to go and get water, which was a good idea. It involved an additional climb up to a visitor center. And once I did that and finished, I was like, yeah, I can do this. Mm. I, I can figure it out. If I need to make adjustments, I make adjustments. Proud of myself in that I was smart to do the safe thing. I didn't just push on and say, oh, I've got a little bit of water left. I'll gut out the next five or six miles or whatever it was, because it was about two thirds, maybe or so three quarters of the way into my marathon. But if I had run out of water, it was really hot. There was, there is no water, even if I had a filter, uh, which I do carry sometimes I was being smart. And you know, I thought, you know, that, that was a good thing to learn about myself that I'm not going to be stupid about this it's not yeah. not meant to be a survival experience right so so that was good it's more um, like an outward bound experience yeah it's oh, yeah. it's about having enjoying it and and it's a physical mental challenge sure but um it's it's not meant to be a life-threatening situation yeah, uh, but i mean more specifically you know i know this happens to me a lot when i'm out in the trails where you'll be in your own thoughts and you'll You'll sort of look up and go, oh, my God, look where I am. Look what I'm mm-hmm. doing and have these, yeah. these, I don't know, almost semi-religious sort of experiences, right? Yeah, I was, I've was. i had that at a number of times because when you're, when you're doing the trail running in the national parks, like I said, not a lot of people run and not a lot of people get past the, the trailheads and the visitor centers and the outlooks. So when I'm, I'm going two or three miles in, I could go the next 20 miles and not see anyone. Right. So yeah, every now and then I stop and I go, wow, look, look at where I am. I'm in the, uh, Shoshone geyser basin in Yellowstone and there's no one around. Got the whole place to myself or, um, I'm in the, I'm in the bottom of the grand Canyon. I'm literally in the bottom of the grand Canyon and going just, this is spectacular. There are a little few more people there, but not, not enough that it was, ever uncomfortable or yeah. distracting so yeah and i think that makes it worth the price of admission those sort of <laughs> those sort of things that you learn about yourself in those sort of moments that you're going to carry with you forever yeah yeah, yeah totally so any, anything else that you've learned through this process specifically things you know if we're if we're causing some poor 
work a day office slave to lift their, <laughs> their cubicle and say maybe I'll go do something weird. You know what? What would what have you learned I, that would be useful? The the so my what I've learned and 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 uh, it's part of my message is that it's possible to make a change or to do something like this. And I think we already touched on it. But if you're sitting at your desk and going, man, I would really like to, hypothetically, I'll make this up. I would love to take my my family of four and sail around the world for a year. And that's extreme. Oh, that's crazy. Or, But it's possible. You may not be able to do it the very next month after you've had the idea, but you have to recognize that, you know, this is possible. I can do this. There are plenty of templates of other families that have done this on the internet. You can go out and find how to do it. And then you start, then after that, it's all logistics. It's like, once you've decided it's possible and you said you're going to do it, you just have to plan it out. And, and that could take three years by the time you learn how to sail and you learn how to homeschool and you figure out the route and where you can, you can moor your, your, craft and how you deal with visas and on and on and on it's all it's none of that's insurmountable but it's not it's insurmountable if you don't ever think it's possible yeah and so i would i would add that that there's it's typically not a straight line you know it's a squiggly path and that's mm -hmm. part of what makes it valuable yeah um so did you meet anybody interesting while you were out and about have you you built up some community here yeah i always what I would always do is is I would go onto uh, Facebook and and the internet and look for running groups in the areas around the national parks, and I would connect with people to run with me. It was the whole point is to try and and get people out into the national parks and and experiencing it on on foot uh, running. And uh, yeah, I met a I met a lot of people uh, through that. I've had about twenty five percent of the time I've had people with me running, so that's been that's been great. I've, uh, a lot of people let me stay at their house. Um, one of the the really um, important, I guess, as you want to call it that, he's he's this super guy. His name is Jerry Dunn. He was like the Dean Carnazes of the 90s and early 2000s. He was doing feats of endurance running before it kind of became cool. <laughs> yeah. He ran the Boston Marathon course 25 consecutive days and then ran the race on the 26th day. Yeah. He, he did 104 marathons in one year and a bunch of other things that were, were pretty impressive. And he reached out to me and said, hey, you're going to be coming through uh, North and South Dakota. I'd love to run with you. Yeah. Oh, and Jerry is 70 years old, by the way. So <laughs> he ran the first half of the Badlands National Park Marathon with me, and then he ran the first half of the Wind Cave National Park Marathon with me. He was uh, training to um, run 70 kilometers for his 70th birthday to raise money for Special Olympics South Dakota. And he's just, just a super guy, and I found that runners are – just they're excited about the project they're excited about the parks they just think the running is cool and yeah it's yeah. been a lot of fun yeah and trail runners are is a great culture as well yeah you know they're they're way more laid back than the they're they're sort of the x cross country runners not the mm -hmm. x track runners right all right so so what's next what are you gonna do after this you're gonna write a book or go back to work you're probably ruined for work now you're probably yeah. enjoyable <laughs> gotta hope not. I got. I still gotta eat. Thoughts are right now is I'm already in Denver, so I'm planning out Hawaii, Samoa, and Alaska. And the the there's a few a few things that I'm I'm kicking around. One is to potentially work for a gear company, whether that's uh, uh, clothing, footwear, accessories, uh, sure. vegan vegan nutrition, and work on the product side. So work with athletes, work with users. And then work with the R&D staff and the developers to actually improve the product, make a new product, do something that I would use and can get behind and am excited about, do sort of product management on that side. So hmm. it's a little kind of corporate, but at the same time, it's in an industry and preferably with a company that uh, I believe in and can get behind. Um, yeah. Consulting, the one thing about consulting is that you're always going to different clients and you don't often get to choose. So... I was my last four clients were five clients, three insurance companies, a hospitality company, and a publishing company, and all fine, but none of those were really exciting to me. So yeah. uh, it would be nice to work in an industry and for somebody you're excited about. Uh, yeah, and I'd like the, to do 
the um, the disciplines of consulting and project management are completely portable. It really sure. doesn't matter what the project is. No, and and I tell people they go, "What's your skill?" and it's and I say GSD, getting stuff done. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I hear you, brother. All right, so, I'm gonna have to move you towards the exit now. Any uh, any ask for the folks who might be listening, and how can they uh, find what you're doing? Yeah, they can they can go to uh, runningtheparks.com is my website. There, I'm also on Twitter at runtheparks. I'm on Facebook, Running the Parks, and Instagram, which is most my most active platform because I do a lot of photos, and the the handle there is Running the Parks. And uh, if anybody is inspired to help me out, that would be wonderful. I do have a generosity.com crowdfunding page that's accessible from my webpage, my website. And uh, Alaska is going to be uh, expensive because of the eight national parks there, four of them require bush plane flights just to get to. And uh, the the cost of all of that is is significant, especially compared to what I did in the lower 48. So working on working on getting that together right so if anybody's in alaska listening to this uh bill needs some help and if anybody yeah. happens to live in american samoa yes need some help right absolutely what in hawaii well, alaska is particularly difficult because of the terrain and the logistics and then the just the uh the dangers of the animals and the wildlife and that so yeah if anybody's in alaska listening and just wants to provide just logistical help or, or suggestions, I'd love to hear it. All right, man. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The First 90 Days, a review of an excellent tool for transitioning into new roles. So I recently have been going through some career transitions As part of this, I'm necessarily engaging in new roles with new organizations in different capacities, and I did what we always do when we wonder if anyone else has found a solution to this challenge. I googled it. I mean, why recreate the wheel if best practices already exist in the public domain? Is there a cheat sheet? It turns out there is. And this is how I came across this wonderfully helpful book, The First 90 Days, Proven Strategies for Getting Up to Speed Faster and Smarter by Michael Watkins. It is from Harvard Business Review, which always gives me pause because many of the HBR books are terrible 250-page expansions of a decent 10-page white paper, but this one is not. It is great. It's a great practical guide with step-by-step instruction and good and bad examples. The first 90 days of a new role is a critical time. You have the perfect storm of an incredibly steep learning curve, an unfamiliar organization, and the need to produce results. You're in the spotlight not only with your new management, but with your new peers and your reports as well. These 90 days make or break your ongoing role with that organization. It's an opportunity to put your stamp on the role. And many people fail in these transitions. They fail because they try to wing it. And this book could have saved them. It's not just that you may need the information once in a while when you change jobs. You need to have this skill as part of your portfolio in the modern career world. It's a competitive advantage. Why? Because even if you manage to survive the transition, you will underperform your time-to-value break-even point. Yes, the faster you can get to value, the more value you will accrete to yourself and to your career. And when I say break-even point to value, I mean both kinds of value. The value you bring to the organization and the cumulative value you bring to your career. And it's not just about being enthusiastic, hardworking, having a history of success. You have to know what you're doing and have a plan to get to that value break-even point. And one of the things I really appreciated about this book is that it lays out everything you need to consider in the first chapter. It lays out these transition traps that will feel eerily familiar to anyone who has transition roles. And I quote here, 
But your objective is not only to avoid vicious cycles, you need to create virtuous cycles that help you create momentum and establish an upward spiral of increasing effectiveness. So you could stop right there at the end of the introduction and be well-armed with enough to save your bacon in the transition period. But then he marches through each topic in each one of the subsequent chapters in great practical Harvard B-School examples, specific examples and instructions on how to approach each directive and each conversation to make your first 90 days amazingly productive. I won't give you them all, but some of the directives that I found particularly useful were accelerate your learning. So think about it. When you transition to a new role, especially an executive role, you're drinking from a fire hose. There is too much to learn. How do you manage it? He lays out how to create a learning plan that allows you to climb the learning curve efficiently. Great stuff. Write it down, and then you can share it with your new boss. You are going to learn the people of the organization, the products, the markets, etc. The point is... Think about the learning process ahead of time so you can focus on what's important and with the end in mind. Now, the second and maybe the most vital thing you will take from this book, the second directive, is to match your strategy to the situation. This was the most useful thing for me. It turns out there are only five situations you're going to encounter. And the acronym for you to remember these five is STARS. Your new role is either a startup, a turnaround, an accelerate growth, a realign, or a steady state. Now, I have taken over startups and turnarounds, but if I applied those strategies to my current role, it would not be as successful if it was successful, because each situation requires a different approach. My current role is an accelerate, and this means that I have to take what's there, understand what is working and what isn't working, and build on it. And if I treated it like a turnaround and I marched through the door and started stepping on people's throats, that would be the wrong approach. I would fail. (laughs) Maybe. The organizational immune system would certainly reject me. But this is the point. Match the strategy to the situation. And number three, fairly useful directive, secure early wins. People have a tendency to try to do too much in the first 90 days. You can't do everything. You have to work with your boss to negotiate what those early wins will be. What can we accomplish that will make a difference in 30, 60, 90 days? Understanding and negotiating early wins, this requirement, this will accelerate your time to value, and it will also keep you from getting stuck in unwinnable situations. Number four, again, very useful, directive, negotiate success. So the key to all of this is to keep your boss or bosses in the loop with everything we just talked about. And the book lays out how you have these conversations at the end of the first week where you present your 30, 60, 90-day plans or even during the interview cycle, right? And how to stay on top of that during the transition, during the new role, during the first 90 days to get that buy-in and that alignment. And then moving forward, as you negotiate what you're going to do and what resources you will need to get it done, and this gives you air cover and alignment and resources with your direct management and the organization to get what you need to get done in those first 90 days. And the last one I'll cherry pick out. There are more than these, but I'm only going to cherry pick five. The last one, number five, is build your team. And this part talks to how how to assess the existing team and make the necessary organizational adjustments. Yeah, we say things like that, organizational adjustments. Who are we going to stick in? Who's not going to make it? How to evaluate? And these are not the only points covered, but these are the ones that were most useful to me. And they also gave me a framework from which to explain my strategy as I make my way around the organization. So as you're talking to people, you can actually share these plans and these frameworks, and that's another great way to get that alignment and that positive momentum. And it may be that I found 
the right book at the right time for me, for it to be so effective and relevant, but I found it to be a wonderful cookbook full of recipes for the high-stress, high-stakes process of taking on a new leadership role. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friend, you have run through various national parks in various states to the end of episode 4 dash I think it's 373 of the Run, Run, Live podcast. Please wipe that dirt off your feet before you come in. So one of these weeks, I drove up to Quebec for an appointment, and the leaves are turning, so it's a pretty drive. There's nothing much up there between Boston in northern New Hampshire and Vermont. Since the paper mills left, there really isn't much industry, and there's no traffic either. You can just set the cruise control and nap for a couple hours. And having had an office in Quebec City for a number of years, I know this route very well. I know that if you want to, you can cut through Franconia Notch. And there are a string of mountain hiking trails in there, smack dab in the middle of the presidential range of the mountains and the White Mountains. So I pulled off, and I threw my kid on, and I went for an afternoon run slash hike up the Falling Waters Trail up the side of Mount Lafayette. And it's, it's a super difficult trail. You can't really run it. The rangers, the rangers call it Falling People Trail because of all the tourists they have to drag out. It's a pretty trail, but it's, it's fairly hard. And it runs right up a cascading brook. Not runnable per se, but it certainly works your legs and gets your heart rate up. And I only fell down once, and that was on the way back down. And it was very mild. It could have been a lot worse with that trail. There's some places where if you caught a toe, you would be in trouble. And like I said, I'm still trying to figure out the rhythms of my new gig, and we're all in the same boat. We all get the same 24 hours. You just have to figure out the rhythm that works to balance everything. Any change like this causes stresses that you may not be aware of. And it's not just stresses to you. It stresses to your whole support system, right? And they can manifest in ways you're not aware of. Just, you know, you just got to keep your head right and try to get enough sleep. I did get a uh, club membership in the building, and that has given me much more flexibility to work out around the traffic and to get a shower and start exploring Boston with my feet. So more to come on that topic. I've never actually lived in the city and hence really don't know my way around the city much. And when I'm not traveling... I'll see if I can seize that opportunity to fill in some blanks. And, yeah, I'm sure we'll be sharing about that. So I've missed a few workouts with the travel and the exhaustion, but I do what I can. And that's a secret, right? Do what you can. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him Right. A little coffee here. Not a bad room. A little bit of an echo in it, so I'll get close to the mic, but there's no fan in this room, so I don't have to worry about the noise cancellation. <clears throat> but a lot of hard surfaces, so. See, normally in a room like this, I just throw a blanket over my head and uh, record under the blanket. Starbucks, Guatemalan.